Hi there, I'm Annie Fadley. I work on policy here at Civic Ventures, and I also help produce this podcast. So one of our favorite recent episodes here at Pitchfork Economics was, should Democrats appeal to the center by moving hard left? And Nick talked to Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal in her offices in Washington, D.C. for that episode. She is our representative here in Seattle, and she's also the leader of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and we just love her. But we didn't have time to include everything they talked about, so here's their unedited conversation. Enjoy. So we're just going to begin to chat. Yeah. And this is going to be both a podcast and a catch-up. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Hi, Pramila Jayapal, would you please introduce yourself? I will. It's great to be with you. I'm Pramila Jayapal, and I am the Congresswoman representing Washington's 7th District, longtime activist and advocate, and thrilled to be working with you on all the things that matter. Yeah, and and uh, and Pramila and I go way back. Uh, we did a lot of fun things together over the years in Seattle, where she's from. Uh, among them, the fifteen dollars minimum wage, and uh, and it, and, it, and it, I should just say that it was really. It, that was a journey. <laughs> it was a journey and a learning experience. And, um, and, and for my own part, you know, one of the things that I was, uh, that I, uh, as I reflect back on that experience, uh, you, you love to think about what, what you thought was right and what, what was wrong and where you, where you were wrong. And I, I, one, of the, one of the ways in which I was most wrong uh, was my, were my views on tipped workers. Yeah. You may... Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. And, you know, I uh, came into that uh, conversation, into that into that effort, feeling pretty strongly that tripped workers should be treated differently than uh, other workers. And Pramila and uh, a, a bunch of other people strongly disagreed with me. And uh, I, I, I could think I can say safely and confidently now that I was dead wrong about that. <laughs> I think that's pretty amazing. I mean, I remember you told me that sort of the December right after all of those discussions we were on yeah. an end of the year panel. And, um, you know, and I think that some of it, you, your voice has been so important because you actually, you know, you, you always say I'm a, I'm a proud, successful capitalist and, and I've made money and you bring that lens to why raising the minimum wage or these issues that we're dealing with around poverty and economic issues matter. And I think we're all developing the right set of language to talk about these issues and some of our views around it. And, um, you know, I don't know if we did enough that go around around small businesses. Like, I, I think we had the Small Business Main Street Coalition, but I really think that as I talk to more and more small businesses, even on policies like Medicare for All, it's been kind of amazing for me to hear people say, I disagree with you on everything. Small business Republicans who say, I disagree with you on everything, including, by the way, minimum wage. Yeah. Um, but I really want you to pass a Medicare for All policy because I have 10 employees. I don't mind paying into something, but I don't want to go find health care for my employees. And so, I mean, I just feel like it, you know we're fortunate to have you in the region and to be able to have this conversation around not just what is the right policy, but also what is the right language. And we've used some of your, you know, I've been testing the centrist uh, centrist idea and taking back the use of the word centrist, which you wrote an excellent essay on. And, um, you know, and I'm constantly trying to tweak it, but I think that's the, that's the value of these conversations. And 15, 
I feel like there isn't even a conversation now here in Congress that 15 is the right level. Yeah. And that's, you know, like high five on that because we totally, we did that. And um, uh, not we, just you and me, but we the movement and fast food workers and low wage workers across the country who have changed the reality. And so I'm here in Congress because I believe that if politics is the art of the possible, then our role is to try to push the boundaries of what is seen as possible. Hell yes. Uh, yeah, and I want to touch on uh, a couple of things that you said. First, uh, the intersection of policy and narrative. And it, it, I think, you know, what strikes, strikes me looking back on the fight over tipped wages and $15 minimum wage uh, that's so salient is that not only is, uh, you know, eliminating the tip you know, whatever they call it, the tip credit or the yeah. tip penalty, tip really, penalty. Uh, which is more accurate, uh, a good policy that, in fact, these folks should be paid adequately, irrespective of tips. And if they get tips more, tips more, all the better. And that, in fact, restaurants won't do worse when this happens. Restaurants will do better when it happens because of all things, when restaurants pay restaurant workers enough so that even they can afford to eat in restaurants, it turns out to be pretty good for the restaurant business. But what was, what was even more of a surprise that I really didn't understand at the time was how powerful, how useful and powerful that is as part of the narrative. And here's why, because when we contrast what we're doing in Seattle for restaurants, which is paying people $15 an hour plus tips, with what they're doing in, I don't know, Alabama, which is $2.13 plus tips, what we can show is that we're running a natural experiment where the difference in wages isn't 7% or 70%, it's 700%. Right. <laughs> and so if that's not as stark an experiment as you can run, I don't know what is, and clearly, all the McDonald's in Washington state have not gone out of business, right? right. That, in fact, we have more restaurants per capita in high-wage Seattle than they do in low-wage Alabama. And that serves to prove, in a, in a, I think, in a much more important and stark way, why these policies make sense. Right. And I was thinking about, you know, how we had so many restaurant owners that came to us and were like, we're going to shut down. And then a year later, after we passed the policy, even two years later, they're all doing really well. They're all opening new restaurants. Um, and the narrative around how this is going to kill us has been proven to be false. Right. And I think the tipped wage was interesting because for listeners who don't know this, Washington state has been at the forefront of this movement. I mean, we're one yeah. of the very few states that didn't have a tipped wage. And so for those tipped workers, um, or you know, for the movement that was trying to make sure we didn't have a tipped wage because they saw these differences in wages across the states with the federal tipped wage being so low, um, they felt like we were giving up the narrative that you could do well without a tipped wage. And in the end, when I went to the state Senate right after we passed 15, it was interesting because there was actually no financial reason for them to agree to the deal the way we laid it out because they were actually paying more by doing the scheme that we laid out, but it allowed them to say that they were negotiating for a tipped wage. It was a period of time, it was temporary. But you know that was the narrative they wanted. Now I think we've held strong and we ha it hasn't led to all the things that people were afraid it would lead to and it got us 15. Um, 
but uh, I think you know we learned from that, and I, I and I think that it's been um, inspiring for people to see not just that we could do it, but also that it's helped our economy grow. I mean, what you've always said, what we've always talked about is workers have more money, they spend more, that's good for the economy, businesses do better. Um, that cycle, we just have to keep thinking about. And I just wrote a piece um, that'll come out in January on the working poor. And I was thinking about this idea that really what we have to do is transform the way we think about workers so that workers are not the drain on companies, but they are actually the valued, uh, how did I say it? I forget now, I'd have to go back and look, but the valued, um, they are the valued driver, engine, the valued engine of profitability and growth for companies. And, that, and then taking your same narrative again, but th that is a, a dynamic shift in, how we see workers because people say, oh no, we can't increase the minimum wage or we can't give people benefits or we can't do this or we can't pay overtime because it's too expensive. But no, actually, you don't get growth if you don't have workers who are driving that growth. And so the profits have to be shared in a very different and equitable fashion than they have been. Absolutely. And I think uh, what you're talking about is uh, Strictly, strictly not neoliberalism. Right. I would say, <laughs> right? Um, you know, one of the so uh, you know one of the th one of the most profound lessons of organizing for the fifteen dollar minimum wage, just sort of pathetically obvious when you consider it, is that um, contrary to a lot of instincts uh, for act from activists on the left, in a weird way. The farther we went, the easier it got. Mm -hmm. This is one of the profound lessons of the $15 minimum wage is you can't have a fight for $7.75. Right. Uh, right, totally. I yeah. totally agree yeah. with you. It's yeah. like, and now, you know, we've, we, I mean, 15 felt far at the time, but it's really not far enough, it's, right? I mean, isn't. if inflation had kept pace, no. we would be, I mean, if wages had kept pace with inflation, we would be at 21, 22, and depending on what state you're in, more than that. And so. Right. It, but. You know, when it, but you know, if you raise the minimum wage from 725, which is the federal minimum, to 775, you help a few people in the bottom one or two deciles. Uh, in 2012, when we first started talking about this, uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour uh, included the bottom 45% of workers or right. something like that. It may have been slightly more. So you absolutely have people's attention. And that lesson has turned into a new conversation that you and I have had about what the true meaning of centrism is. Because what we, what 40 years of neoliberalism taught us, taught the Democratic Party, if we're being honest, is that centrism is found when you balance the economic interests of the richest people who hold 50% of the income against everyone else in the country who owns the other 50% of the income. And of course, if you put that on a ruler, um, that fulcrum is found three-tenths of one inch from the right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this came about um, because I think I was at a conference where I was talking about how these progressive policies aren't really progressive. They're, I mean, I'm proud to be called a progressive, but they're not radical. And I think you said, no, they're actually centrist because they serve 
the center of the country? Why should centrism mean that the top 1% or the wealthiest corporations are getting all of the benefit? Why wouldn't centrism mean serving the center? And I love that because I was an English major in college and I was thinking about etymology and I'm like, yeah, centrist should mean center. And so I've been um, taking that around the country and trying that. I used it as speech in Iowa. I've used it in some places. And um, we, we still have to tweak it a little bit, but I think, um, so the opportunity of that is that uh, there is a fair amount of research that shows that people love these progressive ideas, whatever you want to call them, right? These, these ideas we're talking about, minim, raising the minimum wage, overtime pay. Yeah, fair wages, fair wages. reasonable health care costs, affordable right. college, a decent place to live that doesn't bankrupt you. It's so weird how right. people prefer those I mean, things. It's, it's amazing, right? And it's not just progressives or young people. It's actually Republicans Everybody. and independents. Everybody. And everyone wants the same thing. And so... Um, and sometimes there is this push to say, well, this person is progressive, but you know, I started a Medicare for All PAC and I actually endorsed a couple of people who are not in the progressive caucus, but ran on Medicare for All. And I think we do have to think about, you know, and there are some people who are like, no, don't say centrist because that's talking about the centrism that is, but we've reclaimed a lot of words in our narrative. Yeah. I mean, we've done that on racial justice. We've done that on so many things. We can reclaim this and make centrism mean center, serving the center, not serving that fulcrum at right. the end. And, and, you know, like we, we, of course, need to always be thinking about taking care of the least, the, the most disadvantaged people in our society. But it is a terrible political policy and economic mistake to make the rich richer every day and occasionally throw a bone to the very poor. Right. Uh, our policies should directly, unambiguously, and significantly improve the lives of the bottom nine deciles of Americans who have been left out of the last 40 years of economic growth. Right. And to me, that's what centrism is. Medicare for all is centrism. Raising the overtime threshold to include the bottom 80% of workers is centrism. Moving the minimum wage up to the median wage is centrism. Right. These are centrist ideas because they will unambiguously improve the lives of the median family, which should be our goal. Right, and so much of what's happened as inequality has grown is that, yes, we have these programs that serve the most vulnerable, the poorest, and we need to have those, but increasingly, there's this giant band between that poverty threshold and the, and the top 10%, and those people, can't survive. They don't and have they have opportunity. Been, they have been forgotten. They have been forgotten. And if you look at the statistic that I that keeps me up at night is 62% of Americans don't even have $1,000 in their bank account. 45% of Americans can't even deal with a $400 emergency. That's a leak, you know, in your roof. That's your car breaks down. That's your kid gets sick and you have to take a couple of days off from work and you don't live in Washington State where you get paid family, paid medical leave. Um, it's any of those things. And so this anxiety is ever present for 90% of people. And for me, that also is the opening for then the blaming that somebody like Donald Trump taps into, right? Because he taps into working people 
who feel like they've sort of been doing everything right, like they got a job, they're working 40 hours a week, now more and more they're working two jobs, you know, they don't have money to send their kids to college um, because education is so costly now. Um, they are worried about their social security because they're afraid it's going to be cut. They're one healthcare crisis away from bankruptcy. Housing has gone through the roof. They can't pay for housing. And they're like, wait a second, you want to talk about immigrants? What about me? You know, and so it leads to this, this place where people get divided. And I think the more we can point out that the only people that benefit from any of the rhetoric, the divisive rhetoric, or the cuts to Social Security or any of these things are the people at the very yeah. top. Very rich people, for sure, for sure, for sure. Myself included, I should add. Well, that's uh, why it's so unusual, because you're willing to say that. And I will say that there there are, and we have some of these folks in, in Washington State, a lot of really wealthy people who don't want to have this either. They yeah. know that your future is not going to be good yeah. if, if we devolve into a country where literally only 10% of the people, if that, have opportunity. Yeah, if America falls apart, it will it will suck to be rich too. Yeah, there will be a revolution. <laughs> yeah. There will be a revolution, and yeah. guess who's going to be the target yeah, of that? Exactly. Yeah, and so how do we how do we talk the Democratic Party, and ideally a bunch of the Republican Party, mm-hmm. into this notion that the purpose of politics is to unambiguously improve the lives of the median family, like how. I would just admit uh, that I'm about to have dinner with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and a bunch of people to talk about the future of the Democratic Party in one of these big dinners. What what should I say to them? Well, I think you should, first of all, point out that people won across the country and we took control of the House because of bold ideas, not because anyone was talking about a 25 cent increase to the minimum wage, but because people were talking about, even in swing districts, ideas like Medicare for all. I think you should talk about the centrism of these ideas. Um, I think you should talk about the fact that we are, we have a situation of crisis where people don't trust either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party because there's so much money in politics. Now, it'll be awkward because you'll be at a dinner where, which yeah. is, you know, about donors to the Democratic Party. But I think that, you know, we have some big pieces of legislation around anti-corruption. But I also think, for me, I don't know if this is something you want to say tonight, but for me, um, one of the things that I've been trying to do is think about how you use elected office to to drive a conversation and to drive a narrative versus following a bunch of polling that is often not really amen to that not useful but also not fit not just right because because if you look at and not that i want us to do what trump is doing but if you look at what trump does he just has a narrative and then he pushes that out there you know after the kavanaugh hearings all of a sudden it was all about the unfairness to kavanaugh he didn't care about the polling the polling did not say that at all but he used his bully pulpit to frame and change the narrative how do we as democrats get bolder about actually framing a narrative because i think for a lot of people and i see it even in our district for people that aren't up as up on the issues as you are um, people look to me and to this office and to us 
for a frame. How do we think about this problem? How do we think about the border? How do we think about immigration? How do we think about healthcare? So we have a real opportunity to use our platforms to really drive a narrative. And that, in some ways, is one of the biggest things that I think um, Democrats need to need to harness is to be bold and to to understand that our wins did not come from people having incremental positions. Even in districts that elected swing, uh, you know, or, or more conservative Democrats, it was indivisibles that turned out. It was black women. It was young people. It was people who were excited about potentially not even that candidate, but maybe a candidate up ticket, maybe a Stacey Abrams, maybe a Beto O'Rourke. And so the analysis has to be right. And the analysis has to take us towards um, the country is moving to common sense slash progressive slash centrist in our meaning of the word um, proposals, transformations in, in our economy. One other thing, um, we've got to pay attention to monopolies, antitrust, corporate buybacks. I mean, if you look at what has happened with inequality, um, when we stopped enforcing the no corporate buyback um, rules, you really saw inequality increase dramatically. And instead of money going into wages for workers, it went into these stock buybacks. And so um, I think that there, there are a few different pieces here that Democrats have been unwilling to take on, but we really have to take on antitrust monopoly stuff. Yeah, I, uh, for sure. And uh, for another conversation, we will discuss uh, the, the uh, big policy uh, that we dropped uh, yesterday, which is called progressive labor standards, where we attempt to uh, deal with some of this. But so, Pramila, am I crazy to think that if Democrats or, frankly, any elected official just did more for their constituents, they would need less from their from their donors? I mean, isn't that the problem with the Democratic Party is it's been so long since we made a big difference in people's lives that they see Democrats as feckless corporate stooges too, yeah. which is fair, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, I tell everybody who comes in as a new member that constituent services is one of the most important things you can do. And, and we got back $1.5 million for our constituents. We helped over 800 people. It was crazy, like just having my name in a, on a letter helps people navigate the system. But I also think it's it's about, you know, we have work to do to really leverage the power of the progressive movement. I just got elected the co-chair of the Progressive Caucus. We have more progressive members than we've ever had before. 40% of the caucus are members of the CPC. We just set up the CPCC, this, this 501c3 and c4 that can be this intersection between the outside organizing and the inside organizing. You saw that work a little bit with the speakers when when Leader Pelosi was is running for speaker now, and we were able to work with the outside groups to sort of leverage, look, here are our asks. We realized we have no progress or very few progressives on most of the exclusive committees. That's where the decisions get made, ways and means, appropriations we were not bad on, energy and commerce, no, hardly anybody, financial services, one person left, you know, intelligence, one person left. So, you know, really thinking, and we said to the, we worked with the progressive groups and said, hold your endorsement, let us get 
equal proportional representation plus a few other things and and we will use our power we will leverage our power and we can do that with our donors as well you know we really want to see the democratic party move in a way that really addresses this and by the way it's not identity politics versus economics that frame just drives me nuts um and so we just have to keep pushing back on that because i think there are a lot of people who are afraid to talk about race a lot of people who think that these are ancillary questions don't get into the immigration questions well you know what it's been put on the table by the president so <laughs> you know good luck not getting into them um so i mean that's all the work we have to do and and i am excited about it because i feel like we have we have this real opportunity to leverage the outside, the inside, you know, donors and, you know, powerful ideas that are out there and just to seize that narrative. Well, Pramila, thank you so much for being with us today. Super fun to be in your snazzy office. <laughs> uh, I will, I, I just should mention that the Cannon House office building is someplace between a ghost town and a haunted house. <laughs> Every office, it, we whooped them, yeah. and the offices are empty. Yeah. And there's a bunch of, like, turned-over furniture. It's kind of spooky. So. No, it is spooky because we're in the process of moving, and actually we will be moving because they are doing construction on this wing. So we are moving over to Longworth, um, and so we haven't been given our moving date, which is why ours still looks relatively lived in and not crazy but yeah there's furniture in the halls for anybody that's trying to imagine what it's like a lot of construction furniture in the halls everyone's moving you know 40 members that lost their seats that are <laughs> that are moving out um so it's always a, a a weird time last two years ago this time um thanks to you and people in the seventh you know i got to be moving in and it was a super exciting time for people who are moving in but i remember thinking wow this this really sucks for people who have lost their elections and have to move out but nick thank you for everything you do and for the ideas and for the vision and the passion um, of the work thank you all right that was fantastic and we actually got to have a fun conversation we really did pitchfork economics is produced by civic ventures the magic happens in Seattle in partnership with Large Media, that's L-A-R-J Media, and the Young Turks Network. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action, follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks, and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. And one more, you should definitely follow Nick on Twitter at Nick Hanauer. See you next week. Thank you, guys. Yeah, Nick, any last, anything that you want to add? No, I, no, you put me on the spot, no. <laughs>